We really just need you to tap the mics and say, test, test. serious responsibility. Auspicious beginning. Sure, the talk show. You know, people phone in and make a beef. Oh, what about? Whatever happens to bug you, that's what you talk about. Sometimes he agrees with the caller, other times he sets them straight. Why are they doing this? 
Why are they doing this? They said when you got here, the whole thing started. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil. Hi, I was wondering if this was the same Chris T who does um, the radio show. Because um, if it is, I think your show is really great. Um, but if it isn't, um, I'm sorry to have bothered you. Come on, fuck your pussies, white man! Threaty again! Judgment is upon us then. Oh, I am back and live. Been uh, doing replays for the last few weeks. Took some of August off. Some R and R. I guess if you're a pirate, it's R and R. It's me, Chris T. Here on the HoundNYC.com, where every Sunday Hound Howls at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Crashing the Party, Doo-Wop, Chop Shop of the Air, Mark and Miriam. You got those doo-wops on vinyl? Well, what do you think, pal? Sometimes it's actually on shellac. Play a 78 for you. I had to take a few weeks off because uh, the world's been getting to me. I'll admit it. The way the world is right now, it's been getting to me. I have never wanted to become a hermit more than now. Just find a little place off on its own and just go there and stay there. People. Oh my God. I pretty much had it with people. Especially stupid people. They're the worst kind of people. And man, this country is churning them out at quite a clip. A lot of stupid people. And I get very discouraged. Uh, Maybe it's because I turned 59 on Sunday. I'm breathing down the neck of 60, looking down the barrel of 60, 60 years old. You can't kid yourself anymore at that age because there's obviously less to go than you've gone. You get another 10 good years, maybe 20 if your health holds up, but after 80, all bets are off. So suddenly you're like, I got 20 years. 20 years of living it up. Maybe if I'm lucky. And it doesn't seem like enough. I always say this, that my two fears are that things will never change and that things will change. What do I mean by that? Well... 
We all are creatures of habit. We all like our routines. We all become set in our ways. We all want things where we put them last. (laughs) Why does someone keep moving my shit and I can't find it? Didn't I just put it here? But change is the only constant, as they say. Change is inevitable. You got to change. No, the climate's changing, right? How about these last few weeks? Shit's fucked up. 27 people died in New Jersey from flooding. Some guys uh, heading out to the Wawa hut. Had to get... uh, some pork roll or Taylor ham. I'm not getting into that argument. Uh, a couple of morons drove around barricades. I gotta, I gotta get to the Wawa. And had to be rescued. Uh, I, we're living, we're living in a time when, when just, just seems to be very little thought given to anybody else. It's uh, what you need. First and foremost, right? I see this when I'm driving back and forth to Saugerties, New York, where I am right now at my store, That Cave, thatcave.com, open Friday through Sunday, noon to five. This is the kind of day I had today. I got here early so I can clean up and set up and put stuff out and price stuff. And a lot of people came through the store, but, uh, very little of them spent any money. Few of them did. But what I got was a lot of these comments. You got some really cool stuff in here. It's a really cool store. And I would say to the, to the people who would say this, you know, you could take all of it home, too. That's the best part. And then you laugh. <laughs> you got a really cool store here something pal if it's so cool buy something how's that what do you think i'm doing down here so yeah i'm doing the shopkeep thing i i never thought i would be doing this i never thought i would be in this place the pandemic brought me here i can draw you a straight line all the way back to how i ended up doing this and uh i'm trying it i'm trying it out trying to make it work Trying to make something out of it. So if you get up to Socrates, 106 Partition Street under Pop Vintage, my cousin's store. Come down and see me. Got all kinds of stuff in here. Cool stuff, or so they tell me. And uh, I'm going to rant for a little while longer, but then our special guest will join us, Ken Katkin. Who teaches law at Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University? Just back from the University of Colorado. And uh, he's also your host for Trash Flow Radio on WAIF FM in Ohio, Saturdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Ken has been on the program a number of times. I think the last time he was here was when uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and they were in the process of ramming through Amy Coney Barrett, who uh, we saw her stripes in this uh, latest ruling with this Texas law that essentially uh, outlaws abortion after six weeks. 
the uh, conservative majority that has been put in place by the world's worst president, the worst president ever. Although uh, Sweet Tea and I were watching the Frontline documentary about uh, 9-11 or uh, the, the 20 years after 9-11, and they make a pretty good case that George W. Bush was the worst president ever. Uh, squandered all that goodwill that the world felt towards us after those attacks. Tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of 9-11, by the way. And um, spent trillions of dollars uh, to get us exactly nothing. And um, made a lot of enemies around the world and seriously degraded the uh, moral authority of the United States. Uh, Mostly Dick Cheney did that. Dick Cheney. But then uh, you had your Paul Bremer and your Donald Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld and those other fuck nuts in there. And I think what I'm getting most tired of is the raw application of power. The way the Republicans just wield power even though they're in the minority and even though the things that they want are by and large unpopular with the vast majority of Americans. We are uh, rapidly heading, if we're not already there, to a case where uh, the minority rules. And in this case, it's a white minority, just like Black Flag saying about it. So uh, it's, not, it's not good. We're, uh, we're also looking down the barrel of another Trump presidency. I have predicted many moons ago that he would run again. And I'm standing by that prediction. He is too much of a narcissist to not try to run again. And this time, the mechanisms that have been put in place by Republicans in all of these states where they're governors, etc., where they run shit, the mechanism is in place for them to uh, steal the election uh, under the guise of uh, correcting the Democrats' stealing of the election because that's what they'll claim if a democrat wins if it's joe biden or somebody else in 2024 and they win the republicans are going to basically accuse them of all kinds of skullduggery while committing their own skullduggery this is the best part beware of those who accuse others of the behavior in which they themselves are engaged that's the operating principle with the gop They're always claiming people are stealing or robbing or doing bad things, but they're the ones doing the bad things, see. With that, let's welcome Ken Katkin, patiently waiting there in Ohio, and uh, ask him how the hell Colorado was. (laughs) Hey, Chris, can you hear me? Can hear you fine. Coming through fine. So yeah, happy to have you. Colorado back. was great as always, but it, you know, it was certainly different during the um, pandemic than uh, than usual. I taught there in the spring, and I never once got to set foot in a classroom. I just taught on the computer the whole time. So why did you have to go to Colorado to do that? Couldn't you have done? I didn't after- really. I didn't really have to. I could have just stayed home in in Cincinnati, but I, I wanted to get out there at least a little bit. So yeah. I didn't go until I didn't even go until after spring break. But I didn't want to let the whole semester go by without. Uh, you know, without actually setting foot in the place that I was working. Now, are you an outdoors type at all? I mean, do you care about, like, the uh, stuff that Colorado has to offer, the outdoor activities? Yeah, very much so, although, you know, I'm not a um, 
I'm not an adventurer. I don't I don't ski and I don't whitewater raft and stuff like that. But I'm uh, extremely uh, into hiking around in the mountains. So did you get to do any of that? While you were there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, good. I did. A, I did a lot of hiking around the mountains. Yeah. Do you uh, do your best thinking while you're hiking? I often hear people say, you know, when I'm hiking out there in nature, I can think. Yeah, I I do. Although I, I you know I I um sometimes I just like you know just get lost in my thoughts when I'm hiking around. Sometimes I actually try hard to think through some particular kind of issues. So it could go either way. But I I do think a lot when I'm hiking for sure. I don't usually listen to music or podcasts or anything like that when I'm hiking. Oh, man, who would do that? You'd get mauled. Next thing you know, like a uh, mountain lion is taking you down because you're too busy listening to pavement or God knows what. How That's ironic, right? right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you're listening to the, the mountain goats and a mountain lion takes you down. That would also yeah, be ironic. Or, or even a mountain goat. Or a mountain goat. Uh, yeah. what, do mountain goats attack hikers? I hadn't heard of that. No, I don't think no, they really okay. do. You do I, I have seen mountain goats while I was hiking. I, I've never actually seen a mountain lion, although there are some mountain lions in Colorado, but they're pretty hard to see. Uh, well, yeah, they they don't <laughs> want you to see them until the last second, Ken. I right. think that's what it comes down to. They're kind of hoping you don't see them. That's the whole yeah. raison d'etre of a mountain lion. You know? yep. <laughs> well, you remember that show Six Feet Under? One of them started with this woman... She's up in Runyon Canyon or something just above Los Angeles hiking. And out of the left side of the frame, this mountain lion just leaps off a ledge and takes her out. You know, did that and it, that really happen? Well, yeah, it was it, it happens. It has happened. Uh, I, uh-huh. I think it's even happened in that canyon. I know it's happened while people have been out hiking. But uh, this is not to dissuade you from a very healthy activity. <laughs> Right. Let's move on to the shadow docket. What do you say? All right. Because yeah. uh, the shadow docket is, uh, if do you want to explain for the layperson what it is? My understanding of it is it's it's decisions made by the Supreme Court absent any kind of regular process, meaning arguments and oral arguments in front of the court, deliberations, anything involving what we think of when we think. Like if you think of the people versus Larry Flint, for instance, you know, if that's your idea of the Supreme Court, uh, that that doesn't exist on the shadow dock. Right. And in fact, it's usually just the argument is only even heard from one side. The other side doesn't even usually get to um, respond. And uh, um, the, the concept of the shadow docket isn't necessarily sinister, although the way it's being used by the modern court is sinister. But the um, you know, the, the, it, it, it's existed for a long time because there are emergencies that people bring to the court, right? So if, if, if people um, bring something to the court and they say, this is an emergency, I need some kind of ruling immediately, you know, there, there are legitimate situations where that might happen. Like, say someone's on death row and they're about to be executed and they, they come into court and say, look, I need a stay of execution uh, because if, if we litigate and brief and argue this in the ordinary course, I'll be dead by then, uh, by the time the court decides it. You know, then then, you know, of course, you would want the the court to quickly rule on the request for a stay and maybe even rule on it so quickly that they don't even, you know, wait to hear from the other side. So, you know, that's sort of the concept. Didn't that just happen with uh, a prisoner in Missouri, if memory serves, who claimed he wasn't able to see his pastor and they issued a stay? 
from yeah, the Supreme exactly. Court? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and in that case, I think they did it because he was, you know, he it had to do with a pastor, and they this court, you know, can never possibly consider ruling against anyone that utters the word pastor. But um, but in, in in you know previous courts would issue stays, you know, also. So I mean, that's the simplest example of the kind of situation where the court is going to have to make a quick decision on what to do without the benefit of having full briefing and full argumentation and without going through the the ordinary deliberative process you'd normally expect the court to go through. But the reason people are paying so much attention to that now is, is not because the, the concept of um, granting some quick temporary decisions is new, but it's because this court is doing very major things in those decisions. It's shifting the law far to the right um, in in these kind of proceedings, when normally you know these kind of proceedings should really just exist for the purpose of preserving the status quo long enough that there that there can be a, a full kind of briefing and full well, argument. Well, in let's the case. Dr- let's drill down on the word normally because uh, from that word we get norms, and it doesn't seem to me that Republicans for the last fill in the blank number of years care about norms like things that would ordinarily restrain. Uh, whether it's elected officials, legislators, whoever it might be, they sort of brush aside and, dare I say, create a new normal. We saw a lot of that in the Trump presidency, obviously, but what? why would we think that the conservative majority on this court cares about norms? No, I, I agree. They don't care about norms. I mean, no, I, I think Chief Justice Roberts does a little bit, but now he's very squarely outvoted. In, in fact, if you if you look at the difference between what Roberts said versus, you know, both what the Democrats said, but also what the other Republicans said in in this very um, case that we're talking about, the, the recent Texas abortion decision, right? The, 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 the five Republicans, not including Roberts, said, you know, we don't, we don't care about Roe versus Wade. We're not, we're, we're not even going to say whether we're overruling it or not. We're, we're just going to let Texas go ahead and, and basically prohibit all abortions in the state without us even lifting a finger to even say whether that's legal or not. We just don't care. You know, that, that's what that's what the, the five other Republicans said. Now, what Roberts said, which would be more consistent with procedural norms, but also is very um, conservative. Roberts said, you know, it may it may well be time to overrule Roe versus Wade right now. But but I would still um, grant a stay in this case and, and prohibit Texas from enforcing this law during the period of time until we hear the case and make the decision. And and then maybe at the end of the case, once we've had full briefing and full argumentation, maybe we should overrule Roe and let Texas go ahead and enforce its law. You know, so so even Roberts, he's the he's the centrist or moderate uh, conservative on the court. And even he is like saying he's ready to throw Roe out the window, but but he's but he's saying he's not going to do it in quite as as shoddy a way as the other five would do it, which is just to not even acknowledge that it ever even existed, which is really what the what the other five just did. It's uh, interesting because Roe v. Wade Wade was a Dallas uh, what was he a attorney general. Uh, in Dallas, who uh, was an elected official uh, or uh, he was uh, put into that role. Uh, I don't know how they come up with attorney generals in in uh, Texas. Some places they're they have to run and they're elected. Other places they're they're put into place by the governor, for instance. But in this case, he was the elected. He was the official who you could sue. And that's why Roe v. Wade. That's why that case exists. In the in in with this Texas abortion ruling, the the gimmick here is that 
essentially they let it, they left it up to citizen vigilantes to uh, turn in their fellow citizens who might be caught aiding and abetting someone getting an abortion after six weeks. The interesting part of this to me was it wasn't necessarily the woman who wanted the abortion. It was anybody else in that chain that helped her, whether it was, and we hear this over and over again on the news reports, the Uber or Lyft driver or taxi driver, the person who drove the woman to the clinic, anybody in the clinic, anybody along the line could be sued for $10,000. And if they win, they got to cough it up. But if they lose, they get nothing. They don't even get their, the, uh, the, the, uh, person who was being uh sued gets nothing not even court costs covered so uh who is the who is the devious devious uh mind that came up with this whole concept i i I read and read and read everything i could on this i couldn't find the name of the person who (laughs) innovated this horrible thing yeah so his name is jonathan mitchell Jonathan Mitchell is the one who came up with all this, and uh, he was recently the Solicitor General of the state of Texas, Um, and uh, Solicitor General is the job just under the Attorney General of a state, um, where the the Solicitor General's job is to litigate the the cases that get to the state Supreme Court or to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the state is a party. So Jonathan F. Mitchell uh, held that job. He's very tight with Governor Abbott there. Um, he himself uh, was a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School, was very conservative when he went there. He went and clerked for Justice Scalia in the Supreme Court after that. And then he uh, got into Texas um, law and politics after that. Um, and more recently, since his tenure ended as Solicitor General of Texas, um, he's been working as a law professor um, at the University of Texas. And he had also been at George Mason uh, in, in the D.C. area. Um, and uh, he came up with all, all this stuff. Um, but it, but really, the, this, this, it, wasn't, it wasn't such an ingenious uh, uh, legal gambit that it necessarily was going to work. It only worked because the corrupt Supreme Court decided that it gave them enough of a fig leaf that they could, they could go along with it. You know, it, it, it shouldn't have worked if you had a more legitimate Supreme Court. Well, it's now being challenged by uh, Merrick Garland, is it not? And uh, on the basis that uh, this post-Civil War law that went into effect to uh, protect uh, newly freed black citizens of the United States essentially says that the state has to protect the constitutional rights of its citizens. Yeah, in fact, it says that a, a um, any person acting under color of state law um, who tries to deprive um, uh, any any person in the state of a constitutional right is actually committing a crime. Um, that that's that's a statute that na- that's now codified at uh, section two forty two of the federal criminal code. Um, it was originally enacted, as you suggested, um, as part of the um, enforcement of the Fourteenth Amendment, as as part of the Ku Klux Klan Act of eighteen seventy one. Um, but I, I think it's very possible that um, the U.S. Justice Department will actually start criminally prosecuting any Texans who, um, who, who file lawsuits against abortion providers, because that is a crime. Um, if anyone uses that, that, that state statute to do that, they're committing a federal, the federal crime of, of trying under color of state law to deprive a, a, a U.S. citizen of their constitutional rights. Um, the, 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 if, if your listeners are curious in the technical aspects of why the Justice Department it might be able to sue Texas, even though um, 
Planned Parenthood and, and some of the um, um, abortion providers at issue weren't able to file a lawsuit according to the Supreme Court. Uh, it's because there's an amendment in the Constitution called the 11th Amendment, which um, essentially puts a lot of limits on the ability of uh, private parties to sue state governments. Um, and so the, the Planned Parenthood could not simply have just sued the state of Texas because the 11th Amendment uh, protects the state of Texas against being sued by private parties. And then, and then Planned Parenthood had difficulty figuring out, well, who would be a good defendant that we could sue? But the United States is not um, under the same limitation. The 11th Amendment doesn't apply to the United States. So the United States could just go ahead and sue the state of Texas. And I think that's a proper defendant to sue here. So that's why the Justice Department suit should be able to go forward, although you never know um, what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. Is there, are there other avenues for setting aside this law? I heard that there, along the way somewhere, there has to be some state official involved, even if a private citizen brings suit, for instance, against, you will use the example of a, a doctor or a technician, uh, a nurse at an abortion clinic, is there any uh, state level involvement along the way yeah. in a suit, or is it? Yeah, yeah if, if, a, if a suit like that happens, um, I mean, again, you never know what this Supreme Court's going to do. But if, if this Supreme Court follows very, very well settled precedent that they should uh, follow, then it becomes absolutely crystal clear that if a lawsuit like that happens, um, then the, the, the judge who would be asked to decide that suit should be considered a state official. And also any any marshals or, or sheriffs or, or anyone involved in executing a judgment should also be considered a state official. And the, the, the case law on this um, is old. And, you know, some simple examples of it would be um, so before we had a federal fair housing act, before, it, before there was a federal law that made it um, illegal for um, landlords to discriminate based on race. Um, we already had the, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, so it was already illegal for state governments to discriminate based on race, but it wasn't illegal for private landlords. And so um, Missouri, um, and some other states, but Missouri was the one that went to the Supreme Court. Missouri started um, um, really um, um, being very open to the use of racially restrictive covenants on real estate deeds. So in Missouri, they would say, well, if a, if a developer builds a suburban subdivision or, and, and sells all the houses to people moving in for the first time, that, that developer can put on the deed that um, the property right that's being conveyed um, um, only includes a right for, for white people ever to occupy the property. And that 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 no no non-white people can ever um, occupy this property, and and then um, under Missouri law that was enforceable by the neighbors, right? So that's very similar to what this new Texas law does. It would say, well, um, so if 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 you live next door to to somebody and they they rent their house to somebody who's non-white, then you can sue them. And uh, and so that the the structure is quite similar to this Texas abortion law. And 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 in, and this is all in the 40s. And and Missouri thought that they could get away with that because they'd say. Well, this is just enforced privately by the neighbors. It's not enforced by the by the police or by the prosecutors or anything like that. There's no crime here. It's all just civil enforcement, which again is the same kind of rhetoric you're hearing now. But in a in a in a very landmark Supreme Court case that really everybody studies when they take first year con law. This is not an obscure case. It's called Shelley versus Kramer. Um, the, the the court held unanimously um, that you know although there might not be any state action involved. 
when a real estate developer records a racially restrictive covenant on a deed of title, um, that there is state action involved as soon as the neighbor goes to a court to try to sue based on that racially restrictive covenant, because even though the neighbor's not a state actor, the judge is a state actor. And 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 if the judge made a judgment, then the judgment would have to be enforced by state officials and they'd, they'd be state actors. So so the, 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 the court in Shelley versus Kramer said at that point, it would absolutely be unconstitutional for any judge to enter an order enforcing a racially restrictive covenant or for any uh, marshal or sheriff or any other kind of enforcement agent to actually go out and try to enforce a court order that was enforcing a, a racially restrictive covenant. So I think that same principle should apply here um, if a neighbor sues and that they're really asking the judge to enter uh, an order enforcing a Texas law that is an unconstitutional Texas law. And so the, the judge shouldn't shouldn't be able to do that. Well, then, a d- possibly dumb question here. Why are we here then? I mean, if this is such a first-year constitutional yeah. law case, what about the five conservatives on the court? Why wouldn't they look at that and go, oh, well, we're just going to – this is going to end up blowing up in our face. I mean, what what are they doing here exactly? It seems to well, me – yeah. Go ahead. It's 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 extremely political, right? What they're doing is is right now, if you read the language of the the short opinion they wrote, they're just saying, well, that lawsuit hasn't happened yet. You know, no no nobody has sued an abortion provider yet. Um, no no nobody sought that ten thousand dollar judgment yet, and so it, it's premature for the court to decide the case. So that's sort of the formal logic of what they're saying. But I think the practical reason they're saying that, even though the outcome should be a foregone conclusion is because they're actually trying to let this completely unconstitutional law um, have the um, intimidating and chilling effect that the legislature intended for it to have. And, you know, I'm sure there's many um, doctors in Texas right now who are thinking, well, I'm not actually going to be the one who sticks out my neck and gets sued for the 10,000 and brings the test case and has my name in the paper. And I don't even know, there may be patients right now who are saying, you know what, I'd rather go out of state or just not get the abortion um, than be the, the 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 patient who gets my name in the lawsuit and the newspaper and all this. So I think that that there there's there 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 probably will be some doctors and some patients who are willing to go through with this and be sued for the ten thousand and and raise those arguments and force the court to decide it one way or the other. But but I think the the Supreme Court is very sneakily and without accountability really, just you know allowing a law that they know is completely unconstitutional to have this window of time um, where um, it's in fact chilling a lot of uh, um, abortions from ever taking place in Texas. Well, meanwhile, the the Supreme Court in Mexico issued a decision, uh, what was it, uh, Tuesday, that said that having an abortion was not a crime. So you're going to see abortion mills uh, pop up along the borders, something tells me, just over the border in Mexico. It's going to be like the 1950s yeah, all over right. again. I think that's how it was it's before. A, yeah, exactly. Day, right? Yeah, go to Mexico <laughs> yeah. and get an abortion. Exactly. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's really curious to me um, that we're, we're, you know, we're at this place right now uh, because Trump got three justices. And— because the the as I was saying earlier, the Republicans are only interested in in wielding power. That that's all they want to do, and they they want to wield that power in such a way that codifies uh, what they believe. Uh, everyone else be damned. Whatever the majority of Americans might believe, abortion. Every time they take a poll, 
is supported by the majority. The, a, a person's right to an abortion is supported by the majority of Americans. At this point, it shouldn't even be an argument anymore. And I'm just amazed that it is. I mean, are you at all impressed by this? Or were you thinking that this is the way things were headed once uh, Amy Coney Barrett was shoved through? Yeah, I mean, I, I figured this. I, I didn't know that they would do it this shoddily, actually. That that surprises even me, that they would, they would um, you know, overrule Roe versus Wade while pretending that they didn't is, is not something I was completely expecting. I, I thought that they would, um, you know, just keep hearing cases and they would keep um, giving reasons in their cases why they were um, sustaining uh, um, increasingly draconian restrictions on abortion. And that's kind of how I thought this would go. Um, the, the idea that they would just try to um, not even um, be the slightest bit accountable for what they're doing and act like they're, they're, they're not even doing that, that this is just some kind of procedural ruling um, when they're in fact, they've in fact, you know, functionally overruled Roe versus Wade. Um, that, that's shoddier than I expected, even from uh, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, who I actually thought was going to want to write an opinion explaining why, why women shouldn't have the right to choose abortion. Uh, talking to Ken Katkin uh, here on Aerial View on the HoundNYC.com. Ken is a uh, professor at the Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University, teaches constitutional law, among uh, other laws, and uh, also host of Trash Flow Radio, Saturdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern on WAIF-FM, streaming online. Uh, the Shadow Docket is also where this new... Missouri Second Amendment sanctuary fight might end up. Um, it's uh, it basically built along the same lines as the Texas abortion law in that it's got citizen vigilantes who are supposed to enforce the law, I guess. But what it basically says is that uh, the federal government cannot uh, put any limitations whatsoever on the Second Amendment and that... Um, the uh, the state of Missouri doesn't have to honor anything that the federal government has to say about the Second Amendment. I, are you paying attention to any of this at all, Ken? Yeah, I, I really just started focusing on it more today when you told me that you want to talk about it. But I, yeah, I, it, it's a you know, sadly, this this Missouri law. I'm I'm pretty sure the U.S. Supreme Court will eventually uphold it because it, it's really actually modeled on some some ridiculous right-wing line of case law that the court has been developing um, since the 90s. Yeah. So it, it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a brand new um, line of case law. And I think they've, they've laid a foundation, um, not only in their Second Amendment jurisprudence, but also they have this states' rights jurisprudence that they've been developing separately from their Second Amendment jurisprudence about the right of state and local governments to decide not to help enforce federal law. And this this did first come up in the gun control context. Uh, you remember back when President Reagan was shot, um, Congress passed the Brady Act in, in response to that, which was mm -hmm. a, a handgun control statute um, named after President Reagan's press secretary, James Brady, who was also shot when President Reagan was shot. And the, the Supreme Court took a case about that in 1997, where the issue was um, whether local governments um, had a constitutional right to refuse to do the background checks on gun buyers that the Brady Act said that they should do. So the Brady Act said if anyone in the country wants to buy a gun, the gun dealer is supposed to ask the local sheriff whether the person has a criminal record. 
and the local sheriff's supposed to reply, yes, they do, or no, they don't. And uh, th these sheriffs in, in Montana and Idaho said, we refuse to do the background check because we think everybody should be allowed to buy a gun, even if they have a criminal record. So why why should we do the background check? And the, 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 um, the U.S. Supreme Court did side with those sheriffs and said, uh, yeah, that it, even, even if the law is perfectly valid and it's a federal law, um, that the, it's up to Congress to um, su supply the enforcement uh, resources and state and local governments really don't, don't have to. So this, this new law in Missouri just it's it's applying that that doctrine on steroids and it's saying not only should the um, Missouri sheriffs not help enforce any federal gun laws but in fact if they do then Missouri citizens can sue the their own sheriffs for that um, but I, I think that the the, the the court's openness to that um, will follow directly from the way it's been deciding all these other cases oh it makes me so exhausted don't you ever get exhausted with all this <laughs> I do get exhausted. You know, I heard you saying at the beginning of the show how you had to take a week or two off because the world was just getting you down. And um, I've been feeling that, too. It, it does it does get exhausting. Remember that Circle Jerk song, I Got the World Up My Ass? That's yeah. how I feel. <laughs> I Got the World yeah. Up My Ass. It's it's really like um, – and it just seems to get nuttier and nuttier. I, where is the common sense? Where's Thomas Paine when you need him? I mean, there's just – and <laughs> this idea that we're now uh, hurtling – towards a uh, a minority rule sort of authoritarian situation where uh donald trump we all know is going to run again in 2024 i have no doubt in my mind that he will if he's not dead in prison uh anything else he will run again because his narcissism demands it and uh, the uh, laws that have been put into place in many of these republican-led states are uh what will put him into the Oval Office if he loses. There's a chance he might win legitimately. Who knows? He might win. But if he loses, he's still going to win. It's, uh, and, and this is the guy that always talked about the fix being in, how the fix is in. He's already, you know, he's already talking about the recall uh, election in California if Newsom ha manages to hang on as governor, Gavin Newsom, he's already calling that a fix. He's already <laughs> saying that's because they stole it if Newsom you know, wins. I'll tell you, Chris, I, I'm not sure that he is going to actually run. I, I'm sure that he's going to keep carrying on as if he's going to run, that he's actually going to announce that he's running, that he's going to put his name you know, uh, uh, on some, some ballots and things. But I feel like he may not go through with it because – I actually would predict that he'd suffer an even more humiliating defeat than in 2020 if he if he did this again. And and I, I think he'll realize that. And I actually although I fully agree with you that he everything that we're every bit of all this nonsense about the recounts and, and, and fraud and everything we're hearing about 2020 is really just uh, about 2024 and that they there will be a, a serious attempt at another um, uh, illegitimate coup. Um, I don't think they'll have any better of a chance of pulling that off next time than this time. I, I think that um, the, the states that those Trumpers don't control um, are enough states to deprive him um, of the uh, of, of the Oval Office. And I, and I even think that, you know, some of the tricks that they've done, like in some of these states, uh, like Georgia passed this law saying, well, if the if the if the voters elect a Democrat and then the state legislature doesn't like that then um, the state legislature can just overrule the, the voters. Um, I don't even think that will work because there's actually no reason 
that the House or the Senate would have to count those votes if something like that happened. And I certainly wouldn't wouldn't want them to and I wouldn't expect them to. So I, I uh, you know, I, I, I think there's still more safeguards in place that will make it damn near impossible for Trump to ever set foot in the White House again. And I, I wouldn't even write off um, that he might be in prison by then. I, I think there's there's enough things going on right now that could send him to prison. He did enough things that could send him to prison. And people are looking into it that um, I, I, I'm not saying I'm sure he will be, but I think I'd go 50-50 on that. Well, where is Tish Jones with this uh, Southern District of uh, New York uh, case? I mean, what, what's the latest on that? Do you have any information? No, I mean, I, no more than you do, I'm sure. But I, I it, that would be Tish Jones is the um, New York State Attorney General, so that would mm. be in the be in the state court, so not the Southern District of New York, which is the federal court. But the um, yeah, the 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 various kinds of fraud that the Trump organization uh, committed, um, you know, she she has indicted the organization and she has um, in, indicted Alan Weisselbach, and I I'm sure that there's all kinds of efforts being made right now um, to, to, to try to find something that they can indict um, Trump on. But, you know, I think they don't want to just indict him on the first count that they can can find that they can indict him on. I think they want to keep investigating to try to make the indictment contain counts that are as serious as possible and that they have as strong proof for as possible. So there's there's no real reason uh, for them to rush. You know, it's not like as soon as they get to the point where they're like, OK, we could indict him now. Um, you know, the, the smart move is not to indict him as soon as they can. The smart move is to just keep building the case as best they can until it's strong and, and the counts are significant and there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt and they know they'll win. I still have a problem with the fact that uh, the Democratic half of the Senate represents, uh, what is it, forty somewhere around 42 million more people than the Republican yep. half? And yeah, it's yet, appalling. It's appalling. It's appalling. And the same is true. In, in the House of Representatives, it's the same is also true. And, uh, you know, the, the Dems number of representatives, the, the majority is pretty thin. It's only like three. But, yeah, they also represent, you know, about 40 or 50 million more people. It, 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 it's it's an extreme problem. And, and you know, it, it's, it is only kind of getting worse because in the House, the, 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 the big data makes gerrymandering, um, you know, more and more powerful of a tool. And in the Senate, um, the way the population is sorting out, you know, every sane person in the country is moving to the big cities. And uh, and and so these empty states just have more and more um, uh, influence. It's kind of wild. Well, you work with young people. You teach young people. Where is yeah. the hope, Ken Katkin? I mean, do you see any hope in their eyes? And uh, tangentially, when will it be illegal to hurt someone's feelings? When is yeah. that <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's a, yeah. That, that those are uh, I, those, those are different kinds of issues, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, it is. Yeah, I am actually a little bit alarmed by that. Yeah. Um, the the second thing you said, there, you know, it's it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think I even um, you know, I mean, I don't want to like start um, you know, going on about faculty politics and things now, which would bore the hell out of your your listeners. But I find it lines, fascinating because there there are people yeah. resigning essentially. These long-term professors are saying, I can't work like this. This is impossible. And, you know, it, because of what we're hearing is happening on a lot of campuses across the country yeah. where it's becoming very liberal. And uh, so, I mean, but I, I, you know, not to focus on that. We we know that that's going on. But uh, do, do the young people have hope about uh, our democracy? Never mind, you know, uh, democratic movements across the world because we heard – that's on a downward trend. We know that yeah. we know that's on a downward trend. 
What about here at home? You know, the United States, it's obviously at a low point now in terms of the health of our democracy. And, you know, so people our age that have been around a while, you know, we could see that. Um, this is about as bad as it's been um, uh, in our lifetimes. Um, and I see different things from young people. You know, I have, I have kids who are young adults, too. And uh, my own kids who are young adults um, are, are totally not into law and politics at all. I think they're they're pretty despairing about that, but they they've kind of focused their their attention and their energies just on completely other things, and I think that's one response that you see from from younger people. Um, the 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 people that I um, teach in the law school, you know, they're they're more focused on um, um, you know trying to trying to have an impact on on our our uh, democracy, and I think when you know when I was teaching in Colorado in the spring which is, um, you know, Colorado is a, a pretty progressive state now. Um, uh, the, the law school there is a pretty high-powered law school. And there, you know, I really did see um, a lot of students that were thinking, you know, this, this country has a lot of problems, and I have to be part of the solution. You know, I, I did see a lot of that, which I found kind of inspiring. Um, you know, in, in uh, Kentucky, where I usually teach and where I'm teaching again now, I see a little bit of that, but, you know, really um, not not as much. I think like it's, it's a tough area, you know, geographically um, to to have a lot of uh, hope uh, about having a big impact, I think. And that 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 does kind of um, I'm uh, guessing that area there. has more of those flags with Trump as Rambo than Colorado. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, the, 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 the culture of all the people around them and the, the, you know, who's in charge of the government there. I mean, although, although Kentucky does have a good governor, but it's got, um, a, a terrible legislature. And of course it's where, uh, Mitch McConnell is from. And, and it's, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a daunting kind of environment to, um, to, 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 to really try to, um, you know, think oh, I can go out here and really make a difference of some sort. Such a good word, daunting. I like that word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What about what do you think of the retire Breyer movement to get Stephen Breyer oh, to I, to step I think down? It's incredibly important. I'm appalled that he hasn't retired already. He yeah. should have retired by now. Um, you know, he sh they, they shouldn't have even been starting. You know, the the Supreme Court starts its term in October, so they actually haven't started yet. This this opinion they rushed to write about the Texas abortion case on the shadow docket that only came out because it was an emergency order on the shadow docket. But usually they take the summer off and they don't start again until October. And it's it's an outrage that Justice Breyer is going to be sitting there in October. He he should have retired um, effective at the end of the term in 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 June. They should have taken the summer to put somebody else into that seat. And there should have been a young person to start up there um, in, in October. And, and he is really, you know, he, I mean, especially if you think about the fact, you know, he might think, well, Biden's in there for another three years. So what's the rush? But if if even one elderly Democratic senator dies or, or gets sick or something like that, um, that could be it. You know, that could be it. Pat Patrick Leahy is extremely old and the governor of Vermont is a Republican. You know, if Patrick Leahy dies, um, he's going to be replaced by a Republican. Um, that could even happen in, in California if, if like um, uh, um, uh, uh, what's her, uh, Feinstein, yeah. who's also very old. Yeah, if she dies, I mean, right now um, you'd say, well, Newsom would just replace her with another Democrat. But they've got this idiotic uh, recall election in California now and, and with a very rigged rules. And it's actually possible Newsom 
could lose to somebody who would only get half as many votes as him. He is, uh, because, by the way, he's 83 years old. So, uh, uh, lately he is? Uh, no, Breyer. Steve, oh, Breyer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's 83 right, years Breyer old. should be stepping, because if, if the Dems lose even one Senate seat, they can't replace him. Right. And so that's what I'm saying. Like he, well, he's there's a moment in time now when he could be replaced. And that that clock is is ticking. I mean, well, it's well, not going to be the length of Biden's whole term that that that, that Biden could necessarily replace Breyer. Well, what, what goes on in their minds? Because didn't Obama take uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg out to lunch at some point? And wasn't there a whole conversation about her stepping down as well? And what? What is it that where they're just like, no, I'm staying put? You know, what? why be so obstinate about it when so much hangs in the balance? Yeah, I mean, no, no Republican justices ever do that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the Republican justices always time their retirements for um, when when uh, um, uh, they can be replaced by a Republican president. In fact, um, you know, in some instances, um, like with Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, they not only timed it that way. But they actually even announced my retirement will take effect upon the confirmation of my successor so that there wouldn't even they wouldn't even leave until their successor was confirmed. So there wouldn't be a gap in the number of, of Republicans on the court if, if anything went wrong with the confirmation hearing of the successor or something like that. So um, I, I don't know why they don't do that. I mean, ju- just Justice White did do that. He made room for Justice Ginsburg, you know, ju- Justice Byron White, who was um, appointed by John F. Kennedy. Um, as soon as Clinton got in, he was like, OK, good. A Democrat's finally in. I'll step down. And so Clinton was able to appoint Ginsburg. That's how she got on. Uh, but then she didn't um, uh, return that same. She didn't pay it forward. You yeah, know? he was and, out and, of there. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. don't get it. I, I just don't get the hubris in just sticking around until God, you, you become what incapacitated. If he becomes incapacitated some way, if he has a health crisis, what happens? Well, it depends. Um, you know, the, the the there's various things that could happen. Um, it depends what kind of health crisis it is. So, if if he can simply physically make it to sit in the court, um, you know, then uh, he can keep voting in cases. And they say that toward the end of the career of Thurgood Marshall, um, he had uh, a year or two on the court where he wasn't retired yet where it was all they could do to wheel him into the courtroom. He had very, very low cognitive function, um, but his um, clerks were still able to write opinions and and he could formally cast his votes. Um, Now, if they're not even able to um, be wheeled into the courtroom and actually be physically present for the arguments, then they they can't vote. And so then you just have a shorthanded court with, Mm. with their vote not counting. Is there any mechanism for replacing him? No, there, there's no. no, there's nothing like the 25th Amendment. So you, you, you may know the 25th Amendment, which applies to presidents and vice presidents, but not to justices, um, which was, it's a late numbered amendment. It's ratified after the Kennedy assassination in the 60s. Um, the, the, the 25th Amendment says that um, if, if five out of six uh, members of the president's cabinet vote that the president is not able to carry out his duties, um, and if the president doesn't uh, object, um, then they then they can remove him, and that's that's an alternative path for removal. It's never been used, um, but but if you imagine a situation where the president's so incapacitated that he can't even you know respond and say I am fit to do my duties, um, then that's that's a mechanism that could could work. And and the twenty fifth amendment allows temporary removal or permanent removal, uh, but but it doesn't apply to the court. There's the the court. Um, it's really just their their seat would stay empty um, until they're able to resign it or until they die. 
Well, this is why we keep hearing about how the number of justices have changed over the years. Uh, you could have eight justices of the Supreme Court. It doesn't have to be an odd number. You don't have to have nine. Uh, we also know you could have 12. You yep. could have 16. You could have 18. There's talk again about this idea of expanding the court. Is that Does this ever gain any traction or is it dead on arrival, this whole argument? You, you know, I'm not sure if you remember, we talked about this uh, back when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and I was not a big fan of it then. Um, on the theory that uh, it, it's endless, right? That once once you once you open that door, once once you become the first uh, 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 party to say, okay, we're going to expand the court till we get a majority, then that basically means till the end of time, every every president who gets a majority in Congress and who doesn't already have a majority on the court um, would would expand the court to make sure they do have a majority on the court. And so I, I saw that as kind of a drawback of that plan. And I, I actually had some other ideas we talked about that I thought might've been more effective, but I have to say, I've been, I've been coming more around to your way of thinking on this since we talked about it a year ago. And, uh, I actually think that even though I still have that concern that, um, if, if, if the court is constantly getting expanded every time, uh, partisan control of Congress changes, then that's going to really, um, you know, politicize the court to an extreme degree and just, just, um, you know, kind of remove any kind of notion that it's really upholding the rule of law rather than just ordinary politics. Uh, but I, I'm now kind of thinking, well, maybe that's better than the alternative that we've got. You know, I mean, we know now the court still has a lot of power. It's basically been captured by the Republicans. And unless, and unless something is done to shake things up, you know, they'll just have it forever. So may, maybe it is better that it, it bounces back and forth like a ping pong ball and people just think of it as an ordinary branch of politics. You know, maybe that is better. So it could be done. If, if you don't mind me uh, blathering on about this, you know, one idea that I've been batting around um, about how to do it, um, I, 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 this is this will be original to Aerial View radio program. I don't know if you'll hear this in any other media outlets. This is one of my original ideas here that I haven't really spoke about publicly before is um, the the one of the obstacles right now to, to, to Supreme Court expansion, besides the kind of political concerns I was just talking about, is this formal legal problem that um, although the Constitution does not say how many justices have to be on the Supreme Court, uh, th there is a statute that Congress enacted, um, you know, 150 years ago that says the number of justices on the Supreme Court is nine, one chief justice and eight associate justices. And that is a statute that has been codified and we, we, it could be changed, um, but we still, you know, most people would say we still have the filibuster rule. So unless um, the, the Dems are willing to break the filibuster rule, there's actually no way to change that statute because it would take 60 votes to, to break the, the Republican filibuster on that, just like on every other piece of legislation. And so it can't be done. I think that's like one of the conventional um, uh, responses to court expansion. But what I've been thinking about is I, I don't know that that's correct that that conventional understanding is correct because um let's the, the the constitution doesn't say how many justices are on the court um but the constitution does say that anybody that gets nominated by the president of the united states and confirmed by the senate to be on the court is on the court so what what i'm imagining here is Let's suppose you have that statute that says the number on the court is nine. We got about a minute, by the way. What, what's that? We got about a minute. 
Okay, so I'm sorry, I'll, 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 I'll wrap this up. The, let's say the statute never gets changed and it just says the number is nine, but but the um, but the president keeps nominating more people anyhow, and the Senate actually does confirm those people. And confirmation hearings in the Supreme Court are not subject to the filibuster rule, so they could confirm with 50 plus the vice president. Um, well, then you'd have a conflict between the confirmation proceeding, which happened, and the statute, which says there's only nine. Um, but normally the, the rule is that if there's a conflict between the Constitution and a statute, the Constitution trumps the statute. So I think the confirmation proceeding would actually be valid, even if even if the statute is never changed and even if it was in violation of the statute that says there's only nine. So maybe that would be one I way like it. that the, this Senate could get it done. Sorry, I went over. The here. Katkin rule. No, we, we're, we're uh, just about out of time. But I want to thank uh, once again, Ken Katkin, who. Talks on constitutional law here on Aerial View and uh, teaches at Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University. Also host of Trash Flow Radio, Saturday, 3 to 5 p.m. on WAIF-FM. And uh, it can be heard online. Any uh, theme for tomorrow? You know, actually, I can't I can't make it tomorrow. I've got oh. a sub for tomorrow. But but All I right. will say I've got a theme for the following week, which I'll, I'll plug if you let me. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my old pal, Bela Co. Krompaker, mm. uh, who is a guy who booked practically every gig that ever happened in Columbus, Ohio, from the 1990s forward. Uh, he just wrote a book, a great book called Love, Death and Photosynthesis. Okay. And I'm going to be I'm going to be interviewing him when I get back in two weeks or Sounds good. week from tomorrow. Thank you so much, Ken. We're out of road, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, Ken will be back again before much longer. You're listening to HoundNYC.com, vintage hound shows and hound howls, and uh, hound howls on Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Crashing the party, Mark and Miriam, Sunday at 5 p.m. I'll be back again before much longer. When you're sad.